Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be continuing coverage of the Judge Rotenberg Center in Canton, Massachusetts. Let's get right to it. In the last two episodes, we've taken a look back into the history of Matthew Israel, his obsession with adversives, Judith Weber, and how the Behavior Research Institute became what is now known as the Judge Rotenberg Center. We've talked about several deaths, numerous accounts of abuse, the invention of the Sibis, the graduated electronic decelerator, and the GED4. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you might want to skip back two episodes and start from the beginning. It's a whole lot. The year is 2006, and Judge Rotenberg Center and Matthew Israel are still doing what Judge Rotenberg Center and Matthew Israel do, and torturing disabled students at their so-called school. I mean, do we expect anything less at this point? Multiple government agencies raised concerns about JRC's use of physical aversives, among other things. We're talking legislators and the Board of Regents, just to name two. So, the New York State Education Department, which from here on out shall be referred to as NYSED, sent in a team to investigate. Why was a New York agency investigating a school in Canton, Massachusetts, you ask? Well, JRC was and is approved by NYSED under Chapter 853 of the Laws of 1976 as a residential school serving students with autism, intellectual disabilities, emotional disturbance, and multiple other disabilities. And New York isn't the only state JRC is licensed through. There are multiple states. These students aren't all residents of Massachusetts. They come from all over the country, though the majority of their students both now and in the past have been New Yorkers. Anyhow, the New York team, which consisted of NYSED staff, three behavioral psychologists acting as independent consultants, and a registered dietitian conducted a five-day review of JRC's program in the spring of 2006. What they uncovered was disturbing, to say the very least. The New York team reviewed school policies, student records, menus, nutritional analysis of menus, nutritional assessments, weight charts, biomedical data, daily health sheets, and a court order for the contingent food program. They also observed school and education programs, conducted interviews with students and staff. Needless to say, they went deep. And their findings? Y'all, I could easily have two whole episodes devoted only to the findings in this report. If you'd like to read it in its entirety, it can be found at Autistic Hoya in that living archive done by Lydia Brown, which will be linked again in the show notes. But let me just give you a few of the highlights. I mean, lowlights, I don't even know what to call it. Let's start with referral and admission practices and the process in which students actually became students at the Judge Rotenberg Center. Through student records, the team revealed that in a number of instances, the family of the student became aware of JRC's program as a result of their child's psychiatric hospitalization. 
and further that JRC's marketing representatives gave presentations at several New York psychiatric facilities, and staff at those facilities had then discussed JRC's program with families. If a family had shown interest, JRC's marketing representatives would then visit interested families in their homes and provide these families with information as well as gifts for both the family and the student. Gifts, huh? An example was listed in the report, a gift bag for the family and a basketball for the student. Anyone else want to know exactly what's in that gift bag? Okay, so now they have their prospect. The next step was to work on that student's behavior plan, so they would need an assessment. Exactly how does JRC assess the student and determine who needs level 3 physical adversives added to their behavior plan? Well, according to the report, physical adversives can be added to a student's behavior plan before they've even stepped foot into the school. Quote, JRC may decide prior to a student's acceptance into the program that he or she requires aversive procedures based on historical and current behavioral information provided by the parents, the Committee for Special Education, and other records or reports. The school districts and the parents are informed that JRC will seek a court order through the substantiated judgment process to use aversive procedures that include the use of skin shock, manual and mechanical restraints, helmets, and contingent food or specialized food programs. Parents are asked to sign an informed consent for JRC to seek the aversive procedures and for JRC to seek the court order to use the aversives. The school district and parents are informed that the use of aversive procedures may be a condition of the student's acceptance and continued enrollment in the program. Y'all remember that zero rejection policy, right? Huh. Well, it seems there are a couple stipulations to the student's acceptance and enrollment into the program. So now we've effectively recruited the student and the family or guardian has signed for the adversives. Now what? Well, JRC needs that signature from the probate judge to approve the use of level 3 physical adversives on the student. So after enrollment, a student is initially placed in an educational setting designated by JRC as an Alternative Learning Center, or ALC, which is just a fancy word for a small conference room, and a residence which JRC itself characterizes as one of the most restrictive settings. And the student is watched literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week, each behavior documented. According to the report, in this setting, interactions with students involve little to no instruction, Staff primarily attended to the students' negative behaviors and employed the use of physical and mechanical restraints at a high frequency and for extended periods of time. Quote, One student's behavior chart documenting total inappropriate behaviors showed an increase from 800 per week during the first weeks after admission to JRC to an average of 12,000 per week. Question, was that student truly displaying inappropriate or dangerous behaviors, or had we already added blinking for too long as an inappropriate behavior? I'm just wondering. If you break it down, that's roughly 1,700 so-called behaviors a day. For argument's sake, let's say the student was awake from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. If you break it down even further to hours, this student had 100 inappropriate behaviors an hour which is more than one every minute, in a small room likely restrained but somehow managed to display 1,700 behaviors a day. Something stinks. 
What is also interesting is what's not documented in those notes. You know, things like positive behavior or academic progress. I mean, why would they need to document that? Remember, this is what goes in front of the judge to substantiate the need for level three adversive behavioral interventions. The report notes that on at least three occasions, quote, the staff was anxiously awaiting court approval of the GED to help the child more effectively. Anxiously awaiting court approval to shock disabled children and adults. Sit with that for a minute. So now the student has been recruited, family has signed off on the use of level three aversives, student has been observed in every inappropriate, and I use that term loosely, behavior has been documented, while the student sits in a tiny room for weeks, and the judge has signed off on the behavior plan and the use of level three aversives. It's time for the therapy to start. This report clearly defined exactly what level three aversives were and how they were and still are used at the Judge Rotenberg Center. And we're not stuck in the 80s anymore. This is 2006. The report defined level three aversives as a broad spectrum of punishment techniques that include movement limitation, for example, mechanical and physical restraint, contingent food programs, helmet, electric skin shock, and the use of behavior rehearsal lessons. And in case you need a refresher, behavior rehearsal lessons were designed by Israel because he believed if you wanted to eliminate a behavior, it had to occur enough for the student to get rewarded or punished. Remember Kathy and her stealing opportunities? And how the team investigating it way back then had called it entrapment? Well, 70, 11 years later, and we're still on that bullshit. Let's get down to the 13 findings the NYSED team documented in this 26-page report. That's what we're all here for, right? Well, buckle up, buttercup, because here we go. Finding number one, the integrity of the behavioral programming at JRC was not sufficiently monitored by appropriate professionals. For example, JRC's psychology department listed a total of 17 clinicians. Of that 17, only four were licensed in the state of Massachusetts. One was licensed in another state, and one was licensed as an educational psychologist. So that makes six. What about the other 11? Another example of insufficient monitoring was the fact that JRC was sending the GED devices home with parents when students were on home visits and instructing these parents to shock their children for bad behavior which was obviously in direct violation of the FDA-required safety precautions on the device. I mean, you think? Finding number two. JRC employs a general use of level three aversive behavioral interventions to students with a broad range of disabilities, many without a clear history of self-injurious behaviors. The team had come to this conclusion based on several different factors one being JRC's near-zero rejection policy. Most students were accepted into the program regardless of their diagnoses, but their treatment plan was all the same, regardless of what that diagnosis was. Another, that there was no consideration of the potential negative effects, like depression, anxiety, or PTSD. In fact, in several cases, students already diagnosed with PTSD 
prior to their arrival at JRC, had skin shocks added to their treatment plan. Finding number three. JRC employs a general use of level three aversive behavioral interventions to students for behaviors that are not aggressive, health dangerous, or destructive. A few examples. Nagging, swearing, failing to maintain a neat appearance, refusing to follow staff directions, stopping work for more than 10 seconds, or interrupting others. And that's just to name a few. And I'd like to point out here that former students have reported that they were shocked for nagging when they asked to go to the bathroom too many times. And if they were to have an accident after staff repeatedly denied their request, they would be punished according to their behavior plan, which for many included shock. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. One student reported to the New York team that his last GED application, or shock, was for swearing. Y'all, I would be screwed. The team also discovered that eight students receiving level three adversives had IEPs or individualized education programs that indicated that JRC would be seeking court authorization to use level three adversive behavior interventions. There was no indication that they actually obtained court authorization as they were required, but they were seeking it. Four additional students were being punished with level three adversives with absolutely no indication on the students' IEPs that JRC would even be seeking court approval. So let's get this straight. Students could be shocked for refusal to follow staff directions, but the staff didn't have to follow court orders? What planet am I even on and how the hell did I get here? Finding four. The use of electric skin shock conditioning devices, as used at JRC, raises health and safety concerns. The team cited concerns about the use of devices not approved by the FDA that automatically administered shocks, like that GED seat we talked about last week. These devices automatically activated and continued to deliver shocks until the behavior stopped. The staff had no control. The GED was also being used during showers and baths on some students, despite the warning label clearly stating that it was not to come in contact with water. Water, electricity, you see the problem here. Well, apparently, JRC didn't because not only did the staff openly admit to students wearing a GED during baths or showers, a student reported to the team that she had been burned when she was shocked while in the shower and she was on the GED-4. There were also concerns about the GED itself and its modifications. Remember, Israel had upped the ante and made the device more powerful in both intensity and the duration of the shock with that GED-4 we were just talking about. The team expressed concern about the lack of peer-review research, effectiveness, and safety of the modified GED stating that NYSED has concerns regarding the long-term health and safety of the students, particularly those who may receive multiple electric shocks as part of their behavior plans. Finding 5. The contingent food program and specialized food program may impose unnecessary risks affecting the normal growth and development and overall nutrition and health status of students subjected to this adversive behavioral intervention. NYSED found that the contingent and specialized food programs focused only on the total number of calories earned, 
and failed to identify on a daily basis what nutrients were being discarded as a result of the student not fulfilling their behavior contracts. Yes, I just said calories earned. Add that to the list of 7,500 things I never thought I'd have to say prior to covering this case. See, meals were divided into little cups. Think of the little plastic containers filled with dressing for your salad. If a student broke their behavior contract, they were forced to throw a cup away. Multiple portions of their meals, or in some cases, the entire meal would be discarded due to students breaking their behavior contracts. Students at JRC have to earn something as simple as freaking food. If you're thinking this sounds worse than prison, well, you'd be right. Finding six. The education program is organized around the elimination of problem behaviors, largely through punishment, including the use of delayed punishment practices. Less than 10% of the students enrolled were receiving a reinforcement-only program. The team found that even those in the positive-only reinforcement program weren't being rewarded for good behaviors, but rather only rewarded for the absence of negative behaviors. Students who had a reported history of harm to self or others were observed by the team fully restrained in restraint chairs, wearing movement-limiting helmets, and placed in those conference rooms isolated and excluded from participating in the classroom. Staff reported that students could spend the entire day restrained in these small rooms, isolated from the rest of the students. Some would spend all their time in these rooms until court approval for the use of level three adversives could be obtained. For example, the team observed one student who left the school building in full restraints, hands and feet restrained with Velcro straps and a restraint chair, clearly agitated and upset, and returned the following morning carried to the conference room fully restrained in what appeared to the team to be the same chair. JRC reported to the team that four New York students were approved for the multiple application GED. What is that? Well, for example, a target behavior of aggression exhibited would result in the application of five GED skin shocks for the one single behavior. The GED was also sometimes applied after a delayed period of time, and by delayed, I do mean delayed. A student reported an instance when she had returned to her residence and fallen asleep. She was woken without explanation and told to stand. She was given a GED across her stomach and then was informed that the reason for the punishment was a target behavior she had displayed earlier that day for which she did not receive a GED. An opportunity for a punishment is never to be missed. Finding 7. Some students at JRC are forced to exhibit target behaviors so aversive behavioral interventions can be used. Yep, those behavior rehearsal plans again. Staff reported to the team that this type of behavioral intervention was difficult to participate in and dramatic to watch. A JRC staff member recounted that one of the BRL episodes involved holding a student's face still while a staff person went for his mouth with a pen or pencil, threatening to stab him in the mouth while repeatedly yelling, You want to eat this! You want to eat this! The goal of this whole episode? 
to aversively treat the student's target behavior of putting sharp objects in the mouth. The kicker? Regardless of the student's reaction, he would receive a shock. Five shocks if he had taken the bait and tried to eat the pencil. One shock if he had turned his head away and refused. Either way, this student still received a shock. Finding 8. There is limited evidence of comprehensive functional behavior assessments in accordance with the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act being conducted at JRC. The team cited JRC's own website, which at the time included the following statement, quote, We are very familiar with the field of functional analysis, but frankly, we have little use for it at JRC. What is functional analysis, you ask? Well, it can get complicated if you go down five rabbit trails and read 16 case studies and end up more confused than when you started. I mean, I'm not saying that happened to me, but it totally happened to me. Shout out to Sam over at Hops, Hooves, and Humanity for breaking it down. Functional analysis at its core is pretty simple. It's identifying the cause of a particular behavior in a way that can isolate and predict what will cause it. It's trying to understand what is causing the behavior, for example, environmental factors, versus just punishing it. You can see why JRC had little use for it. Finding number nine, students are provided insufficient academic and special education instruction, including insufficient related services. The supporting evidence a team found to back this up? Oh, there was a list, but let's just go through the most glaring. Of the teaching staff and the 21 classrooms at JRC at the time, one was certified by the Massachusetts Department of Education as a special education teacher. Eleven had academic waivers for teaching moderate disabilities or severe disabilities. Nine had no certifications, licenses, or academic waivers to teach special education. This is looking promising already. The review team revealed the main interactions witnessed between teachers and students were the hourly rotations of the GED electrodes on the students' bodies. Why the rotation? Oh, that's necessary to prevent skin burns from repeated GED applications or shocks to the same contact point on the body. The main interaction between teachers and students at this so-called school is the rotation of torture devices on a student's body. Finding number 10. JRC does not support the implementation of IEP-recommended related services and or promote the transition of students to less restrictive environments. A review of JRC's internal IEP admission checklist states that staff eliminate where possible related service recommendations such as speech and language therapy or counseling. Wait, I thought this was a school. 23 students had CSE recommendations for counseling that were later eliminated. 12 students had IEP recommendations for speech and language therapy that were later eliminated. Seven students had IEP recommendations for OT that were later terminated, and one continued OT on a one-hour-per-month consult basis, which was far below the standard. Four students had IEP recommendations for PT that were later terminated, and all these terminations for all these students were based on JRC's recommendation. 
The team interviewed a student who stated she had entered JRC at the age of 19 with the expectation that she would receive vocational training while she resolved her emotional and behavioral problems. She had not received any vocational training and still remained in the most restrictive settings offered by JRC. This student wept as she asked the team to bring her back to New York. Finding number 11. Behavior intervention plans are developed to support the use of aversive behavioral interventions with very limited evidence of students being faded from the GED device. NYSED found one student who was receiving level 3 aversive interventions for aggression, but according to the teacher's notes, the only aggressions exhibited by the student were in anticipation of the GED. This student was being shocked for reacting to being shocked. I can't, y'all. And as far as being faded or taken off the GED device, JRC's policy stated, GED fading will not occur until the student has gone a minimum of one year with no major behaviors. The Director of Clinical Services confirmed that the expectation for all students is that target behaviors across all categories are reduced to a zero-frequency rate for one entire year. 365 days, 8,760 hours, 525,600 minutes with zero major behaviors, and we've seen what JRC considers major behaviors before the student is even given a chance of being taken off the shock device. And even after a student is faded, they can be placed back on the GED shock program if those targeted behaviors return. According to a later report by the FDA, a student at JRC has been strapped to a GED device for 20 years. 20 years. Finding number 12. JRC promotes a setting that discourages social interaction between staff and students and among students. The team found that JRC does not promote the development of social skills for any of their students. In fact, it forbids it. Even during recreation time on the playground, social interaction is a no-go. The team noted that during five observations, including a total of 59 students, there were no instances of the students socializing with each other and only five instances observed of students socializing with staff. Social interaction, like food, were to be earned through compliance at JRC. Staff indicated to the team repeatedly that it was unsafe for students to socialize because in the past, students had plotted against the staff. Maybe don't torture your students and they won't plot against you. Just a suggestion. Finding 13. The privacy and dignity of students is compromised in the course of JRC's program implementation. Remember that 24-hour video surveillance we talked about? Well, that monitoring included most bathrooms and all bedrooms. However, there was no formal staff monitoring system in place to ensure the privacy and dignity of students during intimate grooming or hygiene. For example, no procedures existed to make sure male staff were not observing female residents during showering or vice versa. One student's behavior program, who the report referred to as C, stated, C will wear two GED devices. 
C will wear three spread GED electrodes at all times and take a GED shower for her full self-care. This student, as all students at JRC, was monitored through JRC's video surveillance system, and a staff person would monitor her while she showered. The team observed students as they arrived and departed JRC. Almost all were restrained in some manner, some with metal, police-type handcuffs and leg restraints as they boarded and exited the vehicles. Several students were transported in wheelchairs to keep them in four-point restraint. And the final finding? The collateral effects, for example, increased fear, anxiety, or aggression on students of JRC's punishment model are not adequately assessed, monitored, or addressed. No measurement of or treatment for collateral effects of punishment such as depression, anxiety, and or social withdrawal were addressed. Through interviews, students relayed pervasive fears and anxieties related to the interventions used at JRC, reporting a lack of trust, fear, feeling upset and anxious, and loneliness. One student stated to the team she felt depressed and fearful, stating very coherently her desire to leave the center. She is not permitted to initiate conversation with any member of the staff. She also expressed that she had no one to talk to about her feelings of depression and her desire to kill herself, and told the interviewing team that she thought about killing herself every day. Her greatest fear was that she would remain at JRC beyond her 21st birthday. And so with all these damning findings, the Judge Rotenberg Center was shut down once and for all, right? Wrong. Even after yet another report, and let me just say, we didn't even get into the findings of noncompliance with the regulations of the Commissioner of Education, which had to be addressed in a whole separate report. I told y'all this could be two episodes in and of itself. Anyhow, even after yet another report of abuses and blatant disregard for the regulations implemented by government agencies and the courts, JRC continued its operations. Business as usual. Let's fast forward a year to 2007, specifically the early morning hours of August 26th. All the students were in bed. It was the middle of the night. A phone rang. A staff member answered, and on the line, it was apparently a supervisor from Matthew Israel's office ordering that two teenage students were to be administered shocks for misbehaviors that had occurred earlier in the day. According to ABC News, the boys were awakened and shocked despite their protests that they had done nothing wrong. The 16-year-old was shocked 29 times and the 19-year-old was administered 77 shocks for their alleged misbehavior. Only they really had done nothing wrong. It was all a prank, a call from a former student who had escaped. 106 shocks were delivered to two teenage boys over a prank call. According to a report by the Disabled Persons Protection Commission, who was tipped off about the incident after a phone call was placed to their abuse tip line, one of the boys even suggested to staff that it could have been a prank, stating as he was being shocked, quote, When have you ever known someone to call and give GEDs over the phone? 
but he was ignored and the staff continued with the punishment. In fact, one of the boys was later treated for two second-degree burns. According to Enterprise News, the 16-year-old who was from Virginia was moved from the center. But the 19-year-old remained. In fact, his parents still supported their son's treatment program at JRC. His father spoke to Enterprise News, stating, My son has been in and out of a lot of places and so highly medicated that he would drool. He was behaving better than he ever had at JRC. He's made huge leaps and bounds since he's been there. The 19-year-old's mother also spoke to the outlet, saying her son seemed to improve at JRC. And further stating about the shock therapy, quote, It's medieval to me, but I guess it works. Her son had just been shocked 77 times for absolutely no reason at all, but hey, I guess it works. According to NBC News, seven staff members were fired from the Judge Rotenberg Center after yet another report, this one from the Massachusetts Department of Early Education and Care, had found that six staffers at the JRC Ran residence had ample reason to doubt the orders to administer the shocks. But of course, they did it anyway. The staffers and a video surveillance worker on duty the night of the incident were fired. And speaking of video surveillance, this whole incident was captured. Actually, that's exactly how founder Matthew Israel would be removed as executive director from the very school he founded. But that'll have to wait until next week because we're out of time. But I want to leave you with this. This was written by a former student at the Judge Rotenberg Center, and it's titled The Board. The most sickening, horrifying experience of my life was being shocked on the restraint board. What is the board? It's a large, door-sized contraption made out of hard plastic, with locking restraint cuffs on each corner, where your wrists and ankles get locked in. Your body becomes stretched spread eagle style, pen tight, rendering you completely helpless, combined with an overwhelming feeling of vulnerability. It is a torture that you would expect to see in a horror movie. The kind that makes you cringe and scream while you watch. The kind you can't get out of your head even after it's over. Only this was happening for real to me. They added the restraint board, which for me was five shocks over 10 minutes to my program after a few months, which means getting shocked five different times over a period of 10 minutes for having just one single behavior. If you have just one of those behaviors on your sheet, which can be getting out of your seat without permission, even without doing anything violent, tensing your body, anything they decide to put in your program. A behavior is anything you do that JRC considers a problem. Anything from hitting your head to talking to yourself, saying a swear word, rocking, even screaming from fear and pain of the shocks is a behavior. The staff grab you, put you in restraints, walk or drag you to where the board is kept, usually right in the middle of the classroom with all the other students watching and stepping over you, and then restrain you to the board, arms and legs locked in. Then the terror starts. You have to wait for it. You never know when it's coming. The staff shocking you usually hides behind a door or desk so you cannot see them. 
JRC lavishes in the element of surprise when shocking us. Then all of a sudden, the searing pain and jolt in your arm or leg or stomach, or sometimes even the fingertips or thigh or even the bottom of your feet, whichever part of the body gets shocked, it will travel throughout. If you get shocked in your arm, for example, it's not a hard pinch. It's a radiating electricity that will travel from your bicep through to your fingertips. Your whole arm jerks against the restraints, causing added pain from your muscles being forced to contract against being tied up. The loud screech of the device goes off with it, and they say your name. There is no tensing up. One down, four to go. Your heart races immediately, and you sweat profusely. All you want to do is throw up. That ten minutes feels like hours. You try to prepare yourself for the next shock. I keep saying in my head, four more, four more, please just finish, please. Trying not to scream in fear because I will be shocked for that as well. It comes again without warning. Next time, maybe in your stomach, the stabbing pain runs left to right, right to left across your belly button area. Your stomach heaves and you lose your breath. More sweat now. Your heart beats faster now than you can feel possible. I start to hope my heart stops. Anything to let me away from this, three more. But now it's even harder. I don't feel I can take any more of this torture. Besides the pain, it's the panic and fear in your mind. There were times when I peed on myself. One particular time, I was put on the board for hitting my head the night before. They said because the staff did not follow my program. They put me on the board. They shocked me repeatedly in the stomach. And when I finally got to five, I thought, it's over. But then they didn't take me off the board. They gave me a six, then a seven, then an eighth. They kept going. I was so filled with fear, not knowing what was happening or when they would ever stop. I went away in my head. I started floating. I had no more tears left. When they finally stopped after 10, they sent other staff in to change my batteries. When they lifted the electrodes off my stomach, it was stuck. They had to pull because it had burned into my skin. I still had those scars on my stomach. When they took the devices off of me to test them, I was still strapped to the board. Every time I heard the noise from the test, I cried and panicked. The staff attempted to comfort me. She whispered to me so they wouldn't hear her because any kind of comforting is never allowed. I was shocked on the board on many separate occasions, one time for something I never even did. I lived this. These things happened, these things were done to me, and I witnessed them done to many others. At the time of this recording, there are still 55 students with electrodes strapped to their bodies at the Judge Rotenberg Center in Canton, Massachusetts. This is a reality for 55 human beings. We have to end this. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Believe me, you don't want to miss next week. More information can also be found at AutisticHoya.net. Lydia Brown has done an amazing job of creating a living archive of Judge Rotenberg Center's abuses. I'll link that in the show notes as well as a link to the full 2006 report. You can also go to Occupy the Judge Rotenberg Center on Facebook. 
the folks at Occupy the Judge Rotenberg Center have been at the forefront of this battle for over two decades. They need our support. Today, I leave you again with the talented Jennifer Masumba and her original song, Heavy Hitter. Until next time, be good to each other. Be blind.